We're going to have a time in our service now where we'll look at a passage from the Bible. We're going to talk about what it means, why this matters, and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible, would you turn to the book of Ecclesiastes? If you look right in the middle of your Bible, you'll hit Psalms, head to the right, you'll hit Proverbs, and then Ecclesiastes is the next book. Chapter 2, beginning at verse 17. If you're using this brown pew Bible, it's on page 473. And when you found that, would you stand together with me? And I'm going to read this passage for us this morning. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, beginning at verse 17. Solomon writes this. So, I hated life. Because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things that I toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to one who comes after me. And who knows whether he'll be a wise man or a fool, yet he will have control over all the work which I have poured, my effort, skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun, For a man may do his work with wisdom, knowledge, skill, and then he must leave it all he knows, all he owns, to someone who has not worked for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What does a man get for all his toil and anxious striving with which he labors under the sun? All his days, his work is pain and grief. Even at night his mind does not rest. And all the university students said, Amen. This too is meaningless. A man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. This too I see for the very first time is not meaningless, is from the hand of God. For without him who can eat or find enjoyment? To the man who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This, too, is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. This is God's word. may be seated. Let me pray for us once more and just ask God's blessing now on this time in his word. Father, we come to your word this morning asking to be met, to be spoken to, to be ministered to by it. We believe this is a living word. This is not just some ancient document written centuries ago, but because your Spirit inspired the men who wrote these words down to write what they wrote, you are speaking to us now, we believe, even in these moments as we come to your word. You tell us very clearly, when you send out your word, it doesn't return to you void. It accomplishes the purpose for which you sent it. Oh, God, accomplish that purpose in each one of us today. As I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Well, although it was decades ago now, I can still remember the feelings that I felt, although it just happened yesterday. I was standing on this sandy beach overlooking the sandcastle metropolis that I had spent hours laboring to construct this afternoon. Uh, All the exposed parts of my body were now lobster red. Uh, My back and my knees were aching from hours of just bending over. And my hair 
as well as my bathing suit, were filled with sand. But I didn't care. It didn't matter. At that moment, all I was doing was just rejoicing. I was looking over, surveying all the work of my hands that I had worked so tirelessly to create. Now, it hadn't totally escaped my gaze or my notice as I looked out and saw that the tide, which was quite far out, it seemed miles away, that as the hours had gone on, it was getting a little bit closer. I noticed that. It just simply hadn't occurred to me as I dug and sculpted and crafted, A, that it would actually reach this far, and B, the devastating effect of the meeting of that mass of water would be with my city of sand. Sand considered it. And I don't remember who it was in the end who said it. Maybe it was one of my parents. Most likely it was my brother because he took kind of a sick pleasure in pointing these things out. But somebody came over, looked at my city, and they said, you know, when that tide comes in, it's going to level all of this as flat as it was when you first started. And my guess is the look on my face showed I had not, in fact, considered that that was the case. And so it was at that moment that that's when these feelings came. Feelings of, of anger, of injustice. First I was mad at the ocean. Because why in the world would this thing, this, this relentless force come in and wipe out everything that I had worked so hard to create? It wasn't fair. And then I was mad at the one who told me that about its inevitability. I was like, why would you say that? How cruel and unjust is that to say that? Here as I'm standing here looking at what I've worked so hard to build. Then, almost immediately after that, my, my feelings shifted to panic. I was like, okay, well, if that's the case, I've got I to stop this. I've got to do everything I can to stop that water from reaching what I've worked so hard to build. I've got to build barricades with logs and rocks and dig ditches, whatever, anything I can do. But the more I tried, the more I realized how pointless it was. None of the things that I tried would keep the water from reaching my city of sand. And as the ocean got closer and closer, it became time to pack up and head home, which by that point I was, was just as well, honestly. I was, I was so disillusioned with the fact that all my work was just going to get washed away. But as if that in itself hadn't been enough for my poor little heart to bear, as we were walking away, I looked back and I noticed a family with a young toddler walking by. And when he saw that no one was around, he immediately claimed ownership and then proceeded to go all Wreck-It Ralph on my city, leveling it long before the unjust tide even had a chance to destroy it. I'm going to find that kid someday. <laughs> We're continuing in this series this morning through the book of Ecclesiastes called The Chasing After the Wind. And if you haven't been with us, over the last three weeks in particular, we've been looking here. Solomon, the son of King David, the author of Ecclesiastes, has applied his gift of divine wisdom as well as his limitless pool of resources to the investigation of three specific areas that all of us seek after at one point and another in order to find meaning and purpose in our life. Wisdom, pleasure, and then today, work all with the purpose, all with the goal of proving his thesis that he began the book of Ecclesiastes with, namely, that everything, everything we see, feel, touch in this natural world, everything is hebel. 
Everything is hebel. This Hebrew word translated here in the New International Version is meaningless, but a word that simply, literally translated means mist, vapor, a, a breath. And the way he's carried out that investigation of these three specific areas is very simply just by going for it, just by taking everything he has and applying everything he has as hard as he can with as much passion and effort as he can in order to just test it out, to see how far it can go. And as much as someone today might want to challenge Solomon's conclusions, might want to be like, I don't know, you know, that was a long time ago, you know what, whatever. No, because as the wisest and the wealthiest guy ever in recorded history, the reality is that no, no one either before or after Solomon has ever just had what he had to, to work with. You've never had the time, you've never had the expendable resources, you don't even had the support staff that he had in order to investigate these things like Solomon did. I mean, just whatever you want to bring to you, you, you earned your little PhD, okay, Solomon had the equivalent of 20. You threw your little kegger last weekend with your friends down by the river, awesome. Solomon, he, he bought out entire vineyards in order to support the month-long celebrations he had with over 20,000 people. You brought in that awesome landscaper to, to fix up your backyard this spring. Solomon planted entire forests. He just wins, okay? He just, he just wins. But if we zoom out, just step back and zoom out and look big picture, what we see essentially what Solomon is doing here, he's seeking to answer the question that all of us are still asking today, which is, what is it going to take to make me happy? Well, what's it going to take to give my life the meaning and the purpose that I so wanted to have? What's it going to take? How much? Is it having all the degrees and awards that that guy has? Uh, is it throwing as many parties, popularity, sleeping with as many people as this person has? Is it uh, uh, maybe having the most success, being the biggest company owner as this guy? How much? How much does it take in order to have that meaning and purpose that I want in my life? And in our passage today, what we see is Solomon's third and final testing of his thesis as he now pursues work, uh, success, to see whether or not giving all you can to that, your career, accomplishments, can give us the meaning and purpose that we're all seeking. If you've been with us over the last few weeks, we've seen already that uh, his testing of wisdom and pleasure failed miserably. They failed miserably to do that. And the reason they failed is because, simple reason, that death. Death, just like that, that faithful tide coming in, it comes, it comes for all of us, and it wipes out everything that we thought we'd gain through those pursuits. And we can't stop its pursuit. No, no amount of degrees or textbooks or, or, or relationships or, or parties, whatever it is, that it can't stop the coming tide of death. You can't stop it. But maybe you want to stop there and say, okay, well, that's fine. I mean, that's, those are more intellectual pursuits. Uh, really, actually, quite juvenile pursuits. Let's see how hard I can party to see if that will... That, you know, of course those things failed. Of course those things get tiresome after a while, but surely... Billion-dollar companies, uh, 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 entire civilizations, surely they have a lasting weight and substance to them that can endure beyond death's relentless tide. 
Surely the labor of our hands or the sweat of our brow can at least bring some meaning to our life. That's not a mere chasing after the wind. Right? I don't know. Let's take a look and see. Let's look. And the way we'll do that this morning is by looking at our passage in just two ways. I want to show you from Solomon's testing of his thesis, first of all, the unveiling of toil, and then we'll look at the true gain of toil. Just those two things this morning. The unveiling of toil and the true gain of toil. So if you close your Bibles, would you open them up again with me? Ecclesiastes chapter 2, starting at verse 17. Now follow along with me as we look now at Solomon's final test of his thesis that everything is Hebel, the testing of work. So let's look first of all at the unveiling of toil. The unveiling of toil. Now I don't know why it is exactly, but with this third test, now rather than walking us through the investigation process like he did with wisdom and pleasure, he just Solomon just goes right to the end. He just goes right to the conclusions. Just jumps right to the end this time. I don't know exactly why. I mean, maybe it's like when you're a parent, by the time you have your third child, it's just way more chill. You're just like, you know what, it's going to be okay. They're probably going to be fine. First child, you're, you're investigating stuffed animals to see if they have sharp edges. The third child, they're playing in the knife drawer, and you're like, you know what, it's probably going to be okay. You've got to learn somehow. It's just different, and I can say that because I am a third child. I don't know why he does this, but he just jumps right to the conclusion... And the conclusion that Solomon comes to at the end of his testing of work or toil, as he calls it here, we see at the beginning of verse 17. Look with me there. His conclusion is this. So, I hated life. I hated it. Which, once again, just like when we encountered Solomon's thesis back in chapter 1 and verse 3, we want to just say, okay, dude, just relax a bit. Just can we turn down the drama level knob, just a couple of notches, and just take it easy. It's not going to be that bad. We're going to be okay, Solomon. But when you read further, we see the reason for his despairing conclusion, where he tells us why he hated life. He says, I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Now, he expands a bit further on that in verse 18 there, saying, I hated all the things I toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. So, I don't know, clearly Solomon, he's gone down this road a number of times now with his testing of wisdom and pleasure, which is probably why now it doesn't take him any time at all to realize that, no surprise, once again, death is the thing that robs our work, robs our toil of its ability to give us the meaning and purpose in life that we want it to have. It too is Hebel, it's a mist, it's a vapor. So death, that's what he's referring to when he talks about having to leave behind all the things that he's toiled for. Which makes sense, that despair makes sense. If you think of life like it was a pottery class, and you spent a lifetime working on beautiful cups or vases or ashtrays or whatever you build in pottery class, and then at the end of that time, you went to gather up your stuff, and then the teacher said, well, no, 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 you can't actually take that with you. It all has to stay here. You'd be choked, right? You would be like, well, this is not fair. I, I worked for this stuff. No, you've got to leave it here. That, that, that's kind of the, the feeling he's referring to here. But when you read on in verse 19, you see it's not just the thought of dying and not being able to take with him what he's worked so hard for. That's his problem. Solomon's bigger problem, 
Look at verse 19. I must leave it all to one who comes behind me. In verse 19, who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. Yet he will have control over all the work into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. Okay, so it's not just the thought of leaving the keys to the family business to someone when he dies, that is his biggest problem. It's the thought of not being able to control whether the one who takes over, he can't control whether he's a wise guy or a complete idiot. Like a fool who's going to take a company he spent a lifetime building and run it into the ground into bankruptcy in six months. He, he can't control that. Now, I know some of you are business-minded people or you're just really, really smart, and you'd say, um, no, he doesn't. He doesn't have to leave it to a fool. It's called succession planning. Hello? You said this guy is the wisest guy ever? I don't understand. Well, keep, keep reading. Keep reading. Verse 20 and 21, look what he says here. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a man may do his work with wisdom, knowledge, and skill. And then he must leave all he owns to someone who's not worked for it. This, too, is meaningless and a great misfortune. So he kind of qualifies what he means by fool. Leaving it to someone who's not worked for it. So two things here that are causing Solomon to despair. First of all, seeing that everything he's worked so hard for is Hebel. It's, it's a mist, vapor, something he can't hold on to and take with him. And that's deeply distressing to him. Theologian Philip Reichen says it this way, You can spend your whole life gathering a collection of some kind. Uh, building a business, making a better home, establishing a school, amassing a large fortune, but you can't take any of it with you. Maybe you'll lose it before you die through some misfortune, a collapse of the financial market. But whether it happens sooner or later, one day you'll have to leave it all behind. Your collection will go to a dealer. The contents of your home will be sold at an auction. Someone else will manage your portfolio, and then everything you have worked a lifetime for to gain and maintain will be gone, end quote. So the first thing that's bothering him so much is that it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how much effort and skill and, and succession planning and, and, and overtime hours that he puts into this. It doesn't matter how well engineered his sandcastles are, whether he sprays them with liquid cement or tries to reinforce them from the inside with sticks or rebar or whatever. It doesn't matter. The coming tide of death is still going to wash them flat and start the whole cycle again as though he'd never even been there. And the second thing causing him to despair is this idea of handing it over to somebody. When he talks about the possibility of leaving all that he's worked for to a fool, he doesn't necessarily mean someone who's an idiot, although that could be included. He also means just somebody who doesn't deserve it. They don't fully appreciate it. That's what he means at the end of verse 21 when he says, leaving all he owns to someone who hasn't worked for it. So the next guy who comes to take over after him, he could be the worst thing or the next best thing. It doesn't matter. Regardless, they're never going to appreciate it. They're never going to value it the same way that you do. Why? Because they didn't have to work to attain it. For example, I've said this at least once before. It's one of the reasons I still struggle to leave my daughters with a babysitter. I don't like doing it. And the reason is because they could be the best babysitter in the world, but they will never care for those girls with the same ferocious love that I have for them. Love that would, that would run into danger, that would 
jump in front of a bus in order to protect them from harm. They're just never going to do that. The amount of work required to raise a child just has a built-in investment and a level of investment that can't be recreated by someone who just steps in and takes over the process because they haven't seen everything that got you up to there. So they just don't appreciate it and value it as much. And in light of all this, if you look at verse 22 now, we read what's already now a familiar tune from Solomon where he asks once again the rhetorical question, what does a man get or what does he gain for all the toil and anxious striving with which he labors under the sun? Again, this is not a business question. This is a life question that's asking about what's actually accomplished. What can you really hold in your hands at the end of all your labor and toil under the sun? And seeing once again that that all he has worked and strived for amounts to no more than a breath that you can see on a cold day and then vanishes. It causes him to despair. It causes him, it leads him to even question the passion and devotion with which he's invested in all of his work. Look at verse 23. He says, all of his days his work is pain and grief. Even at night his mind doesn't rest. There was an article published just last year in the Globe and Mail uh, entitled, Why Do We Work Ourselves to Death? Which suggested in that article that there was a pronounced shift in corporate culture uh, from concern for the well-being of the worker to concern primarily just for the bottom line, that that's really what they cared about. A kind of culture where someone could say, I am killing myself at work, and that would receive a a pat on the back instead of a look of concern. I don't know. I'd be interested to know whether that's actually a shift in corporate culture or just maybe an admission and acknowledgement of what's always been the case. I don't know. I'm not in that world. But I think given Solomon's exploration of this question centuries earlier, I think what he's highlighting in verse 23 here is just the natural frustration The natural despair that comes when we seek to find meaning and purpose and value in something that can actually give it to us. And then all of a sudden we realize that we've poured so much into this thing and it doesn't give us what it was promising. It's depressing to think about. It's one of the reasons, even let's say we're building a sandcastle, we we know the tide's coming in now that we're older and wiser, but we still do it. We just kind of block that out of our minds. We try not to think about it. Blaise Pascal, the famous 17th century mathematician and philosopher, he said it this way, As men have not been able to cure death, misery, or ignorance, they've taken to not thinking about them so as to be happy. And honestly, I think that's one of the true gifts of Solomon's exploration of work here. He's unveiling work, he's unveiling toil, and something we pour so much into to reveal it for what it truly is to force us to think about it so that, hopefully, we'll stop pursuing it to give us what it actually can never offer us. It's a true gift to us. So, just to sum up where we are so far, just to return quickly to that childhood story about me on the beach, what Solomon is doing here, Solomon is that guy. He's that guy saying, hey, the the tide's coming in. It's going gonna, it's gonna to wipe all this out. And as we said, maybe we don't like that. We don't like to hear that. Maybe we just want to be like, hey, shut up, okay? I'm just trying to build a sandcastle here. But remember, he's not doing that because he's trying to be a jerk. He's not trying to rub our faces in it. Solomon is a man at the end of his own life. And he's seeing the tide coming in for himself. And he's looking at all that he's poured so much investment 
resources, time into all that he's accomplished, and he's seeing, I can't, I can't hold on to that. It's all going to be gone. Time will take it away, or I'll die and someone's going to take it over, and it's going to be gone. It's never going to give us the meaning and purpose that we want it to give. Why? Because death, like a tide, comes in, washing it all away, leaving us nothing to show for it. And Solomon is also the guy telling us not to invest so much weight and value in the things that we're working for, in the things we're trying to accomplish. And he's telling us that because when the tide comes in, just like it did for Solomon, you're going to be gone, it's going to wash you away with it, and someone is going to come in and take it over who doesn't even deserve it. They're just going to come in and be like, oh, okay, that's mine now, just like that kid who took over my sandcastles metropolis and stomped it. That's what's waiting for us with all the things we're pouring so much time and effort into. They don't value it because they haven't worked to attain it. But again, in all this, Solomon isn't calling us to remember the coming tide of our death or unveiling our work's inability to give us meaning and purpose because he wants to be depressing. He's not some cynical whiner here. He's not trying to steal joy from our lives. Instead, he's doing that in order to help us to truly live to enjoy the lives that God has given us under the sun as he intended for us to have. Which, as I've said, for each of these tests should lead all of us to stop, to pause and look at our lives from the perspective of our death and to do it often. It's not depressing. It's essential. Look at our lives from the perspective of our death and honestly ask, let's talk about work here. Given the fact that I can't take any of this with me, and that it's all going to be handed over to someone who didn't work for it, am I still comfortable with the amount of time, energy, and skill that I'm currently investing in it? Am I still comfortable with how much I'm pouring into this, given the fact that it's all going to go away? doesn't mean that the things we're working on now don't have meaning and value. They do. They've got great meaning. But would I still invest as much time an effort if I remember that it's all going to be washed away by the tide? It's a great question to ask. Okay, so that's the unveiling of toil. Not always uh, comfortable to look at, but I think essential and necessary if we hope to truly enjoy these lives that God's given us under the sun. The last thing I want us to look at this morning from our passage is show you the true gain of toil. The true gain of toil. And this, honestly, is where some of our minds are going to be kind of blown right now, particularly if you've been here from the beginning of this series, because Solomon's going to say something positive. <laughs> I know. He's going to say something positive, and he's actually going to answer a question. Crazy, I know. He's going to answer this question that he's posed rhetorically a number of times, but never yet answered. Namely, what does man gain from all his toil under the sun? What do we gain? And we see Solomon's Positive answer to his desperate question at the beginning of verse 24. Look with me there. He says, A man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. Now, stay with me, because if you're like me, you read that and you think, What? Really? Um, that, that's your... That's your 
answered? What does that mean? Well, good question. And there's no doubt at first glance, Solomon's answer there sounds no different. Trying to find meaning and purpose, it sounds no different than a secular humanist perspective. Someone who would just say, hey, life's short, you're going to die someday, so you better live as hard as you can right now and enjoy it. Is that what he's saying? We're reading that, we're like, seriously, this is in the Bible? This is the wisest guy ever? Well, I've said it already. Keep reading. Keep reading. Look at the second half of verse 24 and into 25. He says, this too I see is from the hand of God. So, eating, drinking, and finding satisfaction in our work is from God's hand. Verse 25, for without him who can eat or find enjoyment. So with that in mind, I think that helps us already to see that rather than telling us to just go hard after life because you're going to die one day, the teacher here is teaching us how to truly find enjoyment in our lives. Not by immersing ourselves in some kind of selfish, hedonistic pursuit, but by rightly pursuing our work or rightly pursuing our wisdom and our pleasure, all of these things, rightly pursuing them in our days under the sun. How do we do that? By seeing them as gifts from God's hand. Good gifts from God's hand rather than looking to them to find our meaning and purpose in life. David Gibson, in his book on Ecclesiastes, says it this way. Some say, eat, drink, and be merry because that's all there is. Here the teacher says, eat, drink, and be merry because that's what there is. When we accept in a deep way that we're going to die one day, that reality can stop us from expecting too much from all the good things we pursue. When we learn to pursue them for what they are in themselves, gifts, rather than what we need, what we need them to be to make us happy, end quote. Because we can find satisfaction in work. Work is a good thing. It was part of God's good design in the garden. It's not a result of the curse. Work was there before Adam and Eve fell into sin. It's a good thing, and God desires for us to find satisfaction in it. And yes, when Adam and Eve fell into sin, our work was cursed, but it just meant that our work would be harder now. It didn't mean that work wasn't still God's good gift to us. And I think that's exactly what Solomon's getting at in verse 26 there. Describing God, a God-centered life, on the one hand, where God's good gifts of wisdom, knowledge, happiness are given to those who please Him, those who look to Him to find their meaning and purpose, put right next door to an experience of continued frustration and despair, on the other hand, from those very same things for the sinner or for the one who stubbornly refuses to find their meaning in God and seeks to find it in wisdom, pleasure, or work instead. So do you see it now? Solomon is actually, he's, he's collecting his application now from all three tests. And according to him, the true gain of our work or toil, as well as of our wisdom and pleasure, is found not by just abandoning those things, not by saying, okay, I can't find my meaning and purpose there, I'm just going to leave those things behind. No, not at all. That's not what he's saying. In fact, if you just look the way God designed the world, that can't be the case. Why would God give us our minds if not to think and to ponder, to dream? Why would God make our bodies in such a way that we could experience pleasure if not that we could experience it? Why would he give us hands to work and build and create if not to do 
just that. No, the, the true gain of our pursuit of work and wisdom and pleasure is in seeing them and enjoying them for what they are. Good gifts from the hand of God that truly do bring happiness in this life when, now here's the proviso, they do bring happiness in this life when we no longer ask them to give us what they were never intended to give. When we seek to find our meaning and purpose in the place, in the one place that it actually can be found, then we can enjoy these good gifts. David Gibson again says it this way, Ordinarily we eat and drink simply as fuel to enable us to keep going with our work. Ordinarily, we work not just to earn a living, but to find satisfaction and purpose and very likely to make a reputation for ourselves and to achieve success. But what if the pleasure of food, just the pleasure of eating, is a daily joy that we ungratefully overlook? What if our work was never intended to make us successful, but simply to make us faithful and generous? It's so striking, he concludes, that now at the end of the teacher's epic quest through life for happiness, he discovers where it comes from, not from his striving, but from God's giving. Let me say that again. True happiness in life, not from our striving, but from God's giving. God gives these gifts to the one who pleases him. And given all that, even though Solomon has now, he's, he's given us the answer to the question. He said, it's from the hand of God. That's, that's where we find meaning and purpose in our life. I think it's worth pausing, taking a, a moment here and going back and considering for just a second what Solomon said isn't the answer. So think about that for a moment. What he said isn't the way we find meaning and purpose in life. And I honestly think... We need to do that because that's one of the traps of flipping to the back of the book and finding the answer before we've really wrestled with the question. It's also one of the reasons Solomon likes to make us sit in the tension of the question before relieving it with an answer. Because as soon as we feel like we know the answer, very often we stop considering the question anymore. Why is that a problem? Well, it's a problem in this case because I can almost guarantee you I can almost guarantee you, even if you're sitting here this morning and you know your ultimate meaning and purpose can't be found in wisdom, pleasure, and work. If you say, I know that, every single one of us, to one degree or another, are still trying to find our meaning and purpose in those things. We are. We're talking about work this morning, so let's stick to that alley. As it relates to our work, finding meaning and purpose there, I think we still see that the remnants of that pursuits in our lives, every time you meet somebody and you ask them what they do for a living, and then when they tell you, you immediately just inwardly, mentally rank them somewhere according to their importance. Oh, that's your job? Okay, you're about here. Oh, you're a pastor? Okay, you're about down here. <laughs> we, we do that. We rank people when they tell us what their work is. You see it every time you feel disappointment or anger towards your child, because even after all you've invested in their lessons and teaching practices. They still didn't make the team. They still didn't get the scholarship. You see it every time you move family, uh, sleep, time in God's word, prayer that moves down the priority list in order to accomplish something that's actually beyond your, your scheduled 
hours and responsibilities. We're still pursuing our meaning in work. So let's just take a moment because service is going to end and we're going to run out of here and you won't do it. Let's take a moment right now here in the quietness of this moment and just take a minute to honestly look at your life. Consider where you are this morning and assess where you truly are, not where you want to be or where you want people to see you. Where are you right now? Look over the sandcastle city that you've constructed. And as you look at it, what's God's Spirit saying to you? What's He revealing to you as you look at that? My plea to you this morning is if you hear God's Spirit pushing on something, pressing on something as it relates to a misplaced hope that you've put in work or success, don't push it away. Don't, don't schedule it for a meeting next week. Deal with it right here and now, in this moment. Confess it to God. Say, God, I know I've been seeking this thing here to find my meaning instead of looking to you to find that. Or or say, Father, I know I've been pursuing this thing as something to gain instead of just enjoying it, seeing it as a gift from you. Please forgive me. Or maybe you're here this morning and you say, I don't even know if, I don't think I have a relationship with Jesus at all, but as I listen to what Solomon's saying about work here, that's really resonating with me. It's true, I can't take this stuff with me. And yet I'm pouring everything I have into this. I'm abandoning family, enjoyment of life, just to build up something which I'm going to have to give away. If that's where you're at, I'd encourage you to pray this prayer. God, I don't even know if you're real, but I can see that what I've been pursuing here won't give me meaning and value. If, you're, if you can give me that meaning and value... If you can show me what my purpose is, would you reveal yourself to me? Would you show me that you can do it? And he will. He will do it. It's the only place it's found. This is not for people just in some secular profession. This is for pastors. This is for homemakers. This is for everybody. Where are you putting, seeking your, your, your value and your meaning in life and your work? Whatever it is, confess it to God. Then ask him to help you to to reorder, just to reorder life, reorder the priorities that puts God back at the center. We're so prone to move him off to the side to a lower level. Ask for his help to move him back to the center, not because God has some sort of like crazy selfish need for your attention. No, because a life centered on God gives me my true meaning and purpose. That's where it's found. It's not in those other things. And... It helps me to then enjoy God's good gifts, wisdom, pleasure, and work, to just enjoy them as gifts from him rather than being enslaved by those things. And the promise and the hope of God's word is that if you've done that, if you see that this morning, I have been doing that, he's not standing there with his arms crossed saying, well, it sure took you long enough to figure it out. Why don't you just sit the next couple of rounds out and then we'll get to you. No. He is faithful and just. He'll forgive. When we acknowledge our need, acknowledge our failure, He's faithful and just, will forgive us our sin, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. A life centered on Him truly has meaning, and we can truly enjoy all the good gifts that He's offered us under the sun.